Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Sleep is something that we all need. But sometimes it plagues us. Many of us find it hard to get to sleep, especially if you have children or pets. My cat Harrison has taken to waking me up every night around 2 a.m. He doesn't want anything from me. He just wants me to be awake. So naturally, I don't sleep well. A lot of people have trouble going to sleep or staying asleep. I definitely fit into that category. The least little thing wakes me up after I've struggled to get to sleep. And then there's the sleep disorders. There's night terrors, sleep paralysis, and sleepwalking. But I never thought that any of those could lead to murder. In the case I'm talking about today, it did. Or at least the person claims that it did. I'll let you be the judge. This story centers around Scott Filater, and we've got to get past that crazy last name, and his wife, Yarmila. In January of 1997, Yarmela was found stabbed and drowned in the couple's backyard. However, Scott claimed to not know what happened, or have to have heard a thing in the night. He would be charged with her murder. And eventually, his defense would be that he was sleepwalking and committed this crime unknowingly. So do you think this is possible? I'll give you all the facts and then I'll let you decide. You may even learn some really odd facts about sleep like I did. This is the case of the sleepwalker murder. 
Scott and Yarmila Filater had been married for almost 20 years. They were high school sweethearts. Yarmila was a teacher's aide, and Scott worked as a products manager in Phoenix, Arizona. In addition to his job, Scott was very involved with the Mormon church. He even worked with a youth group there. They had two teenagers still living at home, a boy and a girl. And friends and family say they never fought. And on the rare occasion that they did, it was very quickly resolved. They were one of those don't-go-to-bed-angry type of couples. Not the type of people you suspect will become the subjects of a homicide investigation. So what happened on the night of January 17th of 1997? The Filater's neighbor, Greg Coons, was outside in his backyard when he heard some strange moaning noises coming from next door. He said he recalls thinking that somebody was getting it on. When he looked up, he noticed his neighbor Scott was in the bedroom window getting dressed. The neighbor kept on observing the household just out of curiosity. After dressing, Scott came downstairs, where he silenced the barking dogs. Then he saw him walk into the backyard, almost tripping over something on the ground. And to his horror, the neighbor noticed that the something was the body of Scott's wife. And she was just shy of her 42nd birthday. Scott rolled her body to the pool, where he held her head under water. And that was enough ob- observation for the neighbor. This had become something like out of an Alfred Hitchcock film. He ran inside and he quickly called the police. And when the police arrived, they found Yarmila dead. And not only had her head been held under water, but she'd been stabbed multiple times. So this was no accident. They had a homicide on their hands. Oddly, both of the teenagers slept through the whole thing. And Scott was very baffled as to why the police were even there. When they asked how many people were at home, he answered four. He had no idea what was happening. At around 1.53 a.m., Scott Filater was brought into the station for questioning. And Detective John Norman thought surely he would just get a confession. I mean, the husband is always the first suspect in the murder of a wife. And this guy had been observed holding his head underwater. A seasoned veteran like Norman thought this would go really easy. But he was wrong. Scott was sitting there still wearing his pajama bottoms and a white t-shirt. Are you okay? Norman asked. I'm afraid that this means my wife is dead, Scott asked back. When Norman confirmed, Scott wept with his head in his hands. Norman asks a few more questions, trying to get to the bottom of what happened. What brought this on? You tell me what happened. But Scott claimed to not know. Obviously, you think I did it. I don't know what makes you think that. Detective Norman informs him that a neighbor saw what he did. And at this point, he knows he did it, and he wants to know why. I'm sorry, I don't remember doing it. I remember I was in bed. I heard the dogs go crazy. I heard all the voices. I came down and you guys were all over me. God. Norman insisted that he had to remember something more. Scott said he recalled that his wife was downstairs on the sofa watching the TV show ER, and he went to bed. Scott asked how his wife died. Well... The neighbor says you stabbed her and drug her over to the pool, and then you held her under the water in the pool, and he watched you do it. 
From what people are telling me about you guys, you spend a lot of time in the church. A real quiet family and real out of character. I want to know what went on. What would lead you to something like this to set you off like that? What did she do to set you off like that? I don't know. I loved her. Been married all my adult life. She certainly didn't deserve to die. She was a good wife. A great mother. So are my kids. After not getting anywhere about the motive, Detective Norman asks about the blood that's all over him. The later didn't even notice the blood, nor the bandage on his right hand. Fed up, Norman really gives it to him. I know you're lying. Too many people heard you yelling and fighting with her. And too many people saw you, and saw you push her underwater in the pool. They know you, and saw you doing it. That's a fact. And I want to know why. Something had to set this off. When Scott still said he didn't know, Norman then told him he was being charged with first-degree murder. The autopsy came back. Yarmila received 44 stab wounds, and there was water found in her lungs. After a search of Scott's car turned up a Tupperware container with a knife and bloody clothing, they knew this case was sealed. And that was until Scott's sister came forward, claiming to know why he did it. Apparently, her brother had a history of sleepwalking. Once when they were younger, she tried to wake him, only to be thrown across the room. His sister felt that this would explain the violence and why he didn't remember anything. He'd been sleepwalking. One of the world's preeminent sleep disorder specialists, Rosalind Cartwright, was brought in to examine Scott. He was monitored for about four nights in the sleep lab, where they looked at his brain waves while he slept. Cartwright said that sleepwalking itself is not unusual. It's a form of something called parasomnia, which is a sleep disorder. Many who suffer don't recall the things they've done. Some have run into traffic, while others simply make phone calls or eat weird things in the night. While once thought to be an emotional issue, it's not known to be caused by a flaw in the sleep cycle. When most of us sleep, we easily transition from REM to non-REM. And during non-REM, which is the majority of our sleep time, we range from light sleep to deep sleep. And during REM, the brain itself is active, like when we're awake. It's when we dream. And the body paralyzes itself so that we don't act out what we're dreaming. We switch between these stages of REM and non-REM about six times during a sleep cycle. But this is where the trouble can happen. People with sleep disorders can't transition from that deep sleep to a dream state. Instead, they go into a kind of a dissociative state. It's not quite dream and not quite awake. Part of the brain is awake and part of it is not. Oddly, during that time, sleepwalkers are not capable of facial recognition. And when a person sleepwalks, the brain is active in the parts that control movement. The prefrontal cortex, which controls judgment, is inactive. It's why the person might have their eyes open, but not really know where they are or what they're doing. I read an article in Psychological Today, Psychology Today, that mentions the statistics. About one in three adults will sleepwalk once in their lives, and between three and four percent do so regularly. 
It's most common in men, and it tends to run in families. About 45% of those with a sleep disorder will go on to develop Parkinson's, but it's not known why. And there's also a lot of things that can trigger episodes. Stress, too much caffeine, lack of sleep. And many of these people who sleepwalk can become violent if someone tries to wake them. So it's not a myth when someone says you shouldn't try to wake a sleepwalker. They don't think the numbers they have are accurate for violent sleepwalkers because many may be too embarrassed to report an incident. I mean, I don't blame them. Can you imagine telling someone you tried to strangle your better half because you were sleepwalking? So sleep expert Rosalind Cartwright thinks she knows what happened during that night. Earlier in the day, Scott had been trying to fix a broken pump in his swimming pool. But he didn't finish and went to eat dinner with his family. In addition, there were problems at his workplace. There was a possible cancellation of a big computer chip project, which would mean that his staff would lose their jobs. This really weighed heavily on his mind. He discussed it over dinner with Yarmila. And after dinner, he worked at the computer for a bit while Yarmila stayed downstairs watching TV. And then afterwards, he went to bed. But all of this was on his mind and effectively on his mind in his sleep. So much so that Cartwright thinks he got up to finish the pool repairs in his sleep. But he wasn't awake at all, and he was sleepwalking. He dressed, he grabbed a flashlight, and a knife to cut a plastic ring on the pump. So maybe he was startled. If startled, the sleepwalker goes into a fight-or-flight kind of response. And that might explain the many stab wounds on her. And with facial recognition not working during this state, he wouldn't have recognized his own wife. But there were others who thought that it wasn't such a simple explanation. Contrary to popular belief, the marriage wasn't so blissful. Yarmila was bothered by how much time her husband spent at the church he attended. And plus, like a lot of Mormons, he wanted a bigger family, and she did not. In fact, some say she wanted a divorce. And there are rumors of one of them possibly having an affair, but this is all conjecture. So all of this presents a problem. It's a possible motive for murder. Another thought was that Scott might have known about a previous similar case and was going to use that as a defense. Oddly, there have been quite a few cases of very violent episodes that are linked to sleepwalking. I'll just go through a few of them. The first case I could find was in 1846. Albert Terrell had slit the throat of a sex worker in Boston and then set the brothel there on fire. He was acquitted, but many thought he was very guilty. In 1887, a man named Andre Monet was shot on a beach in France. The detective investigating the case realizes after seeing the footprints and the fatal bullet that he had been the one sleepwalking on the beach and killed the man. He turned himself in. While in jail, he was given a gun with blanks, and after firing a shot at one of the guards at point-blank range, they knew he wasn't lying. He was freed, but kept under a 24-hour watch, I think for the rest of his life. A teen, Joanne Keeger, dreamt that she was defending her family against a monster. But the monster, in fact, was her brother and father. 
She killed them but was found not guilty. Mother of three, Esther Griggs of London, dreamt that her house was on fire and she threw her baby out into the street. And this one is wild and I'm totally going to butcher this man's name. Wassel Nypuk was a Polish immigrant living in England and he dreamt he was fighting in a Nazi internment camp. But he had really been in one, so this had to be a very frightening dream for him. When he woke, he found that he'd beaten his landlady to death. He cut off her head and he buried it in the woods. He was found... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Guilty of murder and hanged. Now, the case that was more recently in the news that Scott Felater might have heard of was that of Kenneth Parks, and this occurred in the same year in Toronto, Canada. Kenneth Parks was a 23-year-old man with a wife and a five-month-old daughter. Apparently, he was very close to his in-laws. In fact, Barbara Ann Woods, his mother-in-law, called him her gentle giant. So Kenneth had this lack of sleep probably due to the fact of being a new father, but he also had some stress going on in his life. He was something of a gambler, and he had fallen into some money problems. So to cover his losses, he began embezzling from his job at Revere Electric and taking funds from his family's savings. He got fired from his job for embezzlement. He was going to come clean with his grandmother, who he was very close to, and his in-laws that weekend. But he never got the chance. On May 24th of 1987, he drove drove 23 kilometers, which is roughly 14 miles, over to his in-laws. And after retrieving a tire iron from the trunk of his car, he used his key to get inside the house. And from there, he went upstairs to the bedroom, where he choked his father-in-law, Dennis, into unconsciousness. Then, the gentle giant beat his mother-in-law with a tire iron and stabbed her with a kitchen knife. Barbara was found in another room, stabbed in the chest with blunt force injuries to her nose and skull. Dennis, too, had been stabbed, but it wasn't as severe. Kenneth had also left the kitchen phone off the hook, and then he went outside the door to the teenage daughter's bedrooms. Luckily, he didn't go in, but he just ran from the house. Then he drove to a police station, saying, I think I've killed some people. The police say he seemed very upset and didn't notice the cut tendons in his hands. Something like that is called dissociative analgesia, or a lack of pain in the absence of painkillers. This can occur during sleepwalking or in states of shock. 
His EEG readings were highly irregular, which was indicative of parasomnia. And his story was consistently told over and over. And he had no motive. A jury acquitted him of murder and attempted murder. And there were many factors which might have caused this to happen. Kenneth apparently had plans to fix the furnace at his in-law's house. And he was obviously worried about his upcoming trial and what would happen to the rest of his life as a result. Experts think that he might have been going to fix the furnace in his sleep, kind of similar to fixing the swimming pool, but was startled by someone leading to the attack. Rosalind Cartwright also worked on this case. She offered a pro bono review of the case on Park's behalf, and she concluded that he was having a complex parasomnia from the time he stopped watching Saturday Night Live on his couch to the time he got to the police station. He had a history of parasomnia. His grandfather would cook food while sleepwalking and then go back to bed without eating what he cooked. And there was also many cases of bedwetting with the men in the family. So this case being very prominent, did Scott know of it and decide to provide a similar defense? His trial for murder began in 1999 at Maricopa County Superior Court. And of course, he pled not guilty. He was represented by defense attorney Mike Kimmoner. And the prosecutor, which was Juan Martinez, would later become involved in a very high-profile case of Jody Arias in 2008. Martinez decided to bring in his own sleep expert, Mark Pressman. And Pressman disputed the original sleep test given by Rosalind Carter. He said those EEG waves were not specific to sleepwalking, but more consistent with someone with sleep apnea. And there were also several odd things that point to his possible guilt. For one, he had his contact lenses in. And as a contact lens wearer, I can attest that you don't sleep in your contacts. I mean, nowadays, maybe with some of the newer lenses, but not in 1987. For those of you who don't wear contacts, when you sleep in them, it feels like you have sandpaper in your eyes. And another odd fact about contacts, true sleepwalkers can't distinguish between night and day. So why would he bother putting them in? There was also the fact that he changed his clothes, bandaged his cut, and put the knife and clothes in his car. This doesn't seem like something an innocent person would do, even while sleepwalking. The neighbor saw Scott trying to calm his dogs down, so he could hear his dogs, but he didn't hear his wife scream. The defense countered the argument by saying that dogs were merely jumping on him and not barking, and as a natural reaction, he was shooing them away. Scott stumbled over his wife's body. Even the neighbor said his eyes looked glassy as he stood there before he rolled her into the pool. Stress and severe depression can lead to sleepwalking. The person can have no memory of what they've done. His polysomnograph indicates that he fits the profile of a sleepwalker. Martinez maintained that Scott lured Yarmila outside to the pool where he stabbed her. He cleaned up bandaged his hand, and hid the weapon. After coming downstairs to quiet the dogs, he realized that his wife was still breathing, so that's when he drug her to the pool and he drowned her. He thinks the original plan was for the kids to find her in the morning, 
the victim of an unknown intruder. But his plans changed when the neighbor saw him. And then, knowing of the Toronto case, he could say that he was sleepwalking. Scott had over 65 behaviors inconsistent with sleepwalking, like touching cold water, which would have woken him up. Scott's defense lawyer said a logical person wouldn't have left evidence like blood behind. Scott testified in his own defense. He recalls thinking that maybe he went crazy, which would explain the attack and why he didn't remember it. He said, I thought my brain had thrown a rod, and I thought, I'm going to the state hospital or to prison for life. And that was before I knew that you can take drugs that change your sleeping at night. And this is probably referring to the fact that he was taking, uh, I think it was no-dose or some kind of caffeine pills. At that point, I was saying I'd accept a lifetime of probation of living alone and let my kids sleep somewhere else. Lock me up on my own because I don't want to hurt somebody else. He went on to say, Sometimes when I think about this, I wonder, what kind of Jekyll and Hyde am I? There's no way I would hurt, could hurt Yarm. I don't know that something like that could be in anybody I've ever known, much less me. At the request of his lawyer, he wrote out a 15-page note, which went through his life to kind of prove what a normal person he was. Scott Filater was the oldest of five kids, raised in a middle-class Catholic family. His father was a personal manager and his mother was a nurse. There were some violent clashes between his parents, which deeply bothered Scott. He was a fine student in school, and his school age years is when he began sleepwalking. His mother, Lois, recalls a time when he was 12. He apparently walked into the room stark naked, declaring that he had to get ready for school. And another time, he did the same in high school, coming into the living room around midnight, getting dressed for school, totally glassy-eyed and out of it. And despite the fact that he was a church-going family man, the jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The jury said many things factored into the decision, like the number of knife wounds, the hiding of the clothes, his changing clothes. It all defied common sense. All of that, combined with the testimony of the next-door neighbor, sealed Scott Filater's fate. Scott apparently showed no emotion as the judge sentenced him. He actually wasn't too surprised by the verdict or the sentencing. Right before his lawyer began his closing argument, Scott leaned in and whispered to him, They're not with us, referring to the jury. He admits that even he thought it was a strange defense, thinking something else caused him to do this. The whole case was odd because true motive was never proven. Despite that, Martinez nailed the case. It was his 14th win in a murder trial. And that's not to say Scott's defense didn't try. They even brought in Joanne Ellen Demetrius, who was a jury consultant, and she worked on the O.J. Simpson case to help pick the jury. In the end, the testimony of the neighbor Greg Coons was really what decided it for the jurors. Coons lived next door with his girlfriend. That night, she heard something odd, which she thought was the sounds of lovemaking outside. She urged Greg to go out and check on it, and he peeked over a fence into the filator's yard. And there he saw a woman on the ground. And at first, he thought she was drunk. He didn't even realize it was Yarmilla. 
When he looked up, he saw Scott turning lights on and off and then washing his hands in the sink. Scott then tried to quiet the dogs. He stood over Yarmilla for a while before going back into the house. And then he came back out, this time wearing a glove. He stepped over his wife, drug her to the pool, and pushed her in. When Coons realized that the woman's head was underwater, he called 911. In 2008, a Welsh man, 59-year-old Brian Thomas, killed his wife. They had been married for almost 40 years, and they were spending their retirement traveling in a motorhome. After going to bed, they were awoken around 11.30 p.m. by some teenage boys making a lot of noise. They decided to drive to another site and try to get some sleep. Brian woke up with his hands around his wife's neck. He called 999, which was their equivalent of 911, and he said, I think I've killed my wife. Oh my God, I thought someone had broken in. I was fighting with those boys, but it was Christine. I must have been dreaming. What have I done? To be honest, I'm still on the fence about what I think really happened. I've seen people sleepwalk. It's very weird. My boy has done it. I remember once when he was a baby, he had this weird crying fit. It was unlike any other thing I've seen him do. He'd just been asleep. And then I could tell he wasn't awake, but I couldn't wake him up. He was doing this really weird crying thing. Eventually, I took him outside to try to snap him out of it. And he woke up looking really confused. And then after his dad and I split, he had another episode of sleepwalking when he was a bit older at his dad's house. I guess he walked downstairs and ate a bowl of cereal. And his dad's girlfriend remembers Vigo kind of staring into space and seeming really out of it. He didn't remember what he did the next day. And I've talked to many people who have had whole conversations in their sleep, so this whole thing isn't out of the realm of possibility. We still don't fully understand how the brain even works. So I can't say that this couldn't happen. At the same time, this would be a very convenient way for Scott to dispose of his wife and try to escape blame. I think I have to side with the jury when they said that just too many things stuck out like touching the cold water and not waking up, or putting on gloves and changing his clothes. He hid the knife and the clothes in the Tupperware bowl in his car. And that seems like something a guilty person would do rather than a sleepwalker. And I think until someone can explain why a person might turn violent during one of these episodes, I don't know that I'm totally buying it. Luckily, I've never been under the kind of stress that these guys seem to have been when they committed these awful crimes. So really, I'm totally on the fence. I can't say one way or the other with certainty. It's a very odd case. For a lighter take on sleepwalking, I highly recommend the Mike Burbiglia movie Sleepwalk With Me. So he's a comedian who had a very serious incident when he was on tour. If I remember right, he was staying in a hotel room, and I believe he dreamt that somebody was chasing him. He ended up going right through a glass door, and I think he was on the second floor, landing on the ground below. But of course, he makes it semi-humorous. I think now he takes measures to prevent such things from happening, like always booking a room on the ground floor and making sure he can't get out of the room. The worst thing I do at night is snore and drool. Well, of course, and curse at the cat when he wakes me up. I haven't seen my kid do any more sleepwalking, but the story was kind of a wake-up call to keep my eye on it. If it's a real thing, I don't want any kind of matricide going on.
So that was the case of the Sleepwalker murder. Hopefully we won't hear any more of these cases. It would be really awful to murder somebody you knew during a dream state. So if you like the show, please go to whatever format you listen to the podcast on and leave us a good review. I really appreciate everything everyone has left on the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page, those reviews. Thank you so much. Feel free to check out that page and maybe join the Facebook group. And check out the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I'm still trying to get a website going so you can leave comments and emails there when it gets going. I'm thinking about merchandise, Patreon, and all that stuff. So definitely let me know what you'd like to see as far as that goes. The logo is so cool and I'm so happy with it that I think that would be really cool to see on stickers and t-shirts. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and catch you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.